everybody. This is Dominic D'Angelo of SEScoops.com, but I am here today for episode number two, Dose. Uh, I don't know the French term for two, but it is episode two of Gagne and Magnum, and I am here with Greg Gagne and the legendary Magnum TA. Guys, uh, it's great to be back with you, both of you. Thanks, Dominic. Good to be back here. Where has a week gone? We were, we were just here. <laughs> we were just here. It just seemed yeah. like yesterday. Wasn't <laughs> it? Yeah, it really does. So, um, but it's been a good episode. The first episode was a lot of fun. Uh, I'm looking forward to growing everything and we begin getting good feedback as we're growing and making the grassroots kind of campaign to kind of get the word out about this show. Uh, Greg, just as we were recording today, you were just on Busted Open Radio and that's such a great team over there. Dave LaGreca and Bully Ray and Tommy Dreamer and you name it, Mickey James, Thunder Rosa, they're all there and they do such a great job over there. Um, I had uh, a good time with them this morning. Right. I even, talk, I even I, talked about T.A. You I did? Yes. Yeah, I brought his name up. He said nice things about you, though, Meg. My, Meg yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, he's yeah. a great guy. He's phenomenal, <laughs> without a doubt. You know, before, sure, we go, you said you did before he got on I, here, I'm a little, if I'm a little shaky, I just I just got some news. Um, my girlfriend of a little over three years, we were talking. She went for an interview today for a job, and I was helping her out. She got back and we were talk, talking because I, between Busted Open and this, I started watching a show on Netflix called The Drummer. Oh. And all the drummers for all the big bands mm-hmm. and how, how much that really relates to wrestling and, and timing. And then she tells me, well, you know, I was a go-go girl. And I oh. said, what? <laughs> when was that? Oh, back in the days when they had go-go girls, Marion, North Dakota. Her and her girlfriend worked for a band, and they were the go-go girls in their little outfits. No so way. I asked her to go up and see if she could dig out an outfit and do a little go-go for us today, but I don't think she's coming down. <laughs> <laughs> what a discovery. <laughs> Wasn't it? Yeah. A little shock. So if I stumble around, oh, I'm good. You're good. Well, so how would you relate drumming to wrestling? Like, what, what kind of connections yeah. did you see? It, it, was, it was about the drummer's timing uh-huh. and how important they were to the band. And some drummers could just take over a band and take over the whole the whole beat and the whole the rhythm. And it was the and it was, and the storytelling that the drummers had to do to keep those people going. Wow. And when you get into the storytelling, I can really really relate that to wrestling, and you know how that story has to be told in the ring. Nothing's laid out; you have to create it all by telling that story yourself. And that's I started thinking how much you know. It, it's so much alike, really. There's a lot what of you think, TA. Yeah, I'm fascinated. I'm just sitting here taking it all in. No, that's that's uh, well, it's it's kind of like uh, kind of like the conductor of an orchestra, right? You know, we talked about uh, right. you know, in the day, you know, you were kind of conducting. You you want to take the people on this journey, and it was kind of like conducting an orchestra because you could take them up, you could take them down. You get them on the edge of their seat. You can make them laugh. You can make them cry. You can do all those things if you were masterful at your craft and you had a good partner and a good referee in the ring and you know everybody would be in the right place at the right time. You could do some pretty amazing things and and that that's part of the the magic of of the uh, the old storytelling that that uh, you know this some of it is still held up today even with the young people that. Like you know the the fast, hard hitting, 
extreme crazy bumps, you know, the, the things that, uh, you know, at one time, you know, we, we made little of people that did stuff like that because it was like considered like a cheap pop because you couldn't do this other thing. So you did this, you know, it was anything to get attention. And now they've taken it to such a level that that's, you know, that's the thing. Like if, if, uh, you know, if Greg or myself or Terry Funk or, or Dusty Rhodes or, or, or Vern or, you know, Harley races that were young today, they'd be a gimmick all by themselves because they'd go out there and, and be able to actually, you know, navigate and tell a story and tell a tale. And, and, uh, yeah, it would have to change it up for today. I mean, you can't grab work a headlock on somebody for 15 minutes like you could back, back then. But, uh, but it'd be really neat because I think it's always funny when people talk about, Hey, what would you like to do today? I said, I said, it'd be so much fun because I'd be a walking gimmick. I'd be the gimmick. Because you know, if just if, if you didn't do all that other stuff, you would be marketably different. And uh, you know, I, I'm I'm waiting for somebody to do that because it's, it's it would be very easy to do. There's you know, big guys out there. I know some guys. You know, we want to talk about today. I think fit that mold. And and uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin did it so you know perfectly. You know, years ago, and was the biggest star in the business as a result of it. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Like there is that I, I you notice that almost tonal shift. I think, especially when Cody was back in AEW, there would almost he had that kind of identity of like this is going to be a unique match that is different from everything else that you typically see on AEW because there was the storytelling aspect, but there was also like a lot of callbacks to style that Cody learned under not only just the WWE style, but obviously like the storytelling aspects he learned from his dad and other people too, and implementing that in there. And it felt like a very standout kind of moment for AEW, like in a lot of ways that I always said to week in and week out, it felt like event tune in television. I think in certain ways they kind of lost that route, but I think um, that, yeah, it really speaks to, um, yeah. If you had somebody like Vern coming in, who we'll be talking about later, uh, or anybody like that, it definitely would establish a different identity to your product going forward. Well, you know, they've done, they do researches on TV all, all the time. And the last, last I heard was the attention of the person watching TV now is eight seconds Wow! before they click the channel. So wrestling, TV wrestling has to pick up that pace just to keep the people entertained long enough so they don't change the channel. Mm-hmm. But eight it, seconds is the attention span of the American public right now when they're watching TV. There's a lot of things to distract, and actually, we're going to talk about that too here in a little bit. Um, I and did want to sit in a hold for. <laughs> we're pausing here. Did we stop? Yeah, okay. For a second. Yeah, it paused. You you dropped out for a second, but um, okay, because it all locked up on me here. Oh, did it? Okay. But, uh, it's, it's amazing. And I still think today, if you had the right combination, the right two that really know what they're doing, you can go in and tell a story and have 20 to 35 minutes, 40 minutes to tell that story. I believe you could keep the, the people into it. If, if you're, if you have yourselves established first before you go in and do that. Absolutely. Magnum. Do, you, do, you, do you think so TA or am yeah, I way off? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I watched, you know, Daniel Braun, Brian Danielson, I don't know what they call him there, but I mean, you know, I watched, I watched him and, you know, CM Punk and, uh, you know, different guys where they gave them that platform. 
in AEW, and and you could tell that you know they they were they were taking it to a crescendo, and they were taking everybody on that that journey, and it was uh, uh, it, it was still very modern, and that you know uh, you know a lot of hot hit things, but they were they were not just going through all these moves; they were selling the moves and. And and you were seeing the toll that it was taking on them as the matches progressed, and it wasn't just a you know a like watching a ping pong ball bounce around and and, and with no you know significant impact on, on the on the person that's how they're doing all these crazy things. So getting to see that uh, you know see that work like that is 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 pretty magical, and it's a you know it's a statement to the craft that it, that art form is still very, very precious and the people that can do it can, uh, can, you know, really, you know, write their own destinies almost. And so often more than not, you see that those kind of matches are the really ones that really stand out to people, like as the highlight of the show or the event that's going mm-hmm. on. And it's like, wow, that's the one I want to take away from it. Like, uh, and that, you know, everybody, I mean, you, you, even a small example of that is at WrestleMania 39, people were talking about that Charlotte Flair and uh, Rhea Ripley match. And that had a lot of that aspects to it. Whereas like the in between drama that was going on through all that was like what really people took away from it. So it's Roman Reigns too. He had one with uh, Sammy and it was, he, he did an excellent, excellent job and bringing back really, it was, it was a slower pace. Uh, what I'd call an old school type match. And the people really got into it. So it can be done. It's just the the young people today, uh, they want to do the big bumps and the big flying around and, and all that. And they don't want to take the time to really tell the story. Right. It's a lost art sometimes. It is. Yeah, it is. Did, did you watch did you watch AEW last night? No, I just saw just I a touch of it. it. Mm-hmm. So what did you see, Magnum? The, the, the girls... They had a they had a match four girls each side, mm-hmm. and so they had a spot where they were all getting into a place like to to do a vertical do a vertical suplex, and they got side by side till all four of them was out there, but the last girl that ran in ran around on the wrong got on the wrong side of the thing and realized she was on the wrong side, and then she switched around and got on the other side. And then they all ended up suplexing each other. But it was so comical because they were doing so, I mean, they were really doing a heck of a job, but it was cute. Yeah, but it was like back in the days when the when the midgets came in and, and yeah. the girls too, and they do some really cute spots. Well, they pulled out all the daggone holes and really have this great piece. And, and most people probably didn't see it because they corrected it really fast. But like everybody was instant, instant, instant. And she went, whoop. Nope, I'm supposed to be over here. <laughs> then they all went over in the suplex, but but they had the people and they were like back and forth of spots. Oh, one's on top, another one came out, took her out and back and forth. And it was it was a really well done piece. I mean, there there are having some some much higher level entertainment uh you know matches that they're sprinkling in there. I don't think they they're I don't know that they've ever gotten the continuity to have what I'd consider a, a A plus show from from bell time to bell time, but you know if you can pull off, you know two or three B B plus matches in a in a show, and uh, and don't do anything to 
do a complete expose, you know, in the context of it, you know, then then your product's held up, and at least you've got again that competition out there, and uh, you know, and and I've got my old friends out there represented. God bless them, you know, watching Rick and and Sting. I mean, Sting and our Sting's actually a couple, a few months older than I. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'll go sixty four. He'll be sixty five. I think next month or in March. I think he said, and uh, I'll be sixty five in June. And to watch him out there, he told me he said I can't. He said I just can't get up and down, you know, like so he can't like do the moves. But he said I can take the big one. Yeah. And I'm going, oh dear God! And he did last night. They did a thing off the daggone top and through two tables. And I'm going, oh. Uh, you know, I mean, because you never know how the table's going to break. And, and, you know, you know yeah, there, there we all were last Saturday night. And uh, and those guys are still out there, daggling, hitting for the rafters. And, uh, you know, uh, and the people are still cheering and going crazy. And uh, it's just absolutely nuts that you got Sting at 64, Rick out there at 74, you know, in the old Charlotte Coliseum where we – sold out so many times I can't even remember, uh, you know, back in the day, and they were in that same building. So to see that whole historical journey and sit there and watching these young guys talking about their, you know, for 20 minutes, about a five-minute match and <laughs> doing all their stuff. But, you know, again, it's, 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 the, it's, the, it's the modern era, and they don't want to – they're so terrified of messing up uh, yet. And they've got so many things to do, you know. It's like a, a fast-paced dance. And if anybody's out of sync, out of step, last thing you want to be is that guy that you know on the highlight reel of the, the you know the muffle of the moment. <laughs> you don't want to be caught. You want to be caught with your pants down, basically. Yeah, you know. But you know, but their but their their enthusiasm, and I, I'll say, they really had a real camaraderie and a and a family feeling of the like back in the day that I remember feeling with the boys and I, and I haven't been to a lot of events in, in years and years. So it was cool to see the people interacting the way they were in the back and, and, you know, everybody really tried to help each other and didn't, I didn't see a lot of, you know, egos walking around and looking down on each other and, Oh, I'm, the, I'm all this and that. And you're lucky to be in my presence kind of thing. It was a, it, it was a healthy atmosphere. And uh, I mean, I, I really hope they're successful. Well, that's good to hear because, you know, I think a lot of the um, the impression that is left on social media and on the Internet is like, oh, my God, TNA, I'm not TNA, um, AEW's in shambles and there's a, so much tension and drama and all this stuff going on. But from your account, Magnum, from what you saw, it would just seem to be really good synergy and a positive kind of backstage environment, huh? Well, they might just need an old guy with a white beard sitting around staring at everybody. Maybe they'll all behave. <laughs> Maybe they're on their best of manners with you back yeah. there. I, just, I sat around and, and I was having a good time, so they saw I could like they were too, and it was a good thing. <laughs> they were afraid of you. <laughs> right there. Magnum, hey, man, you, you can still yeah. intimidate. Um, <laughs> let me ask you this, Magnum. How, um, I mean, when you first met Sting, did you ever fathom that he would be wrestling for this long and like going this long? I knew that he was a stellar athlete. And matter of fact, he brought something up that he remembers to this day. 
I was actually calling a match. He was wrestling in the UIC Pavilion. Jim Ross and I were calling it. It was Lux and Sting against the Steiner brothers. And Sting ran and leaped from the middle of the ring over the top rope all the way to the floor, and Steiner caught him. And it was the most athletic. It was, it was like Michael Jordan. And Sting was about 260. And, I mean, he leaped through the air. He got so much height, so much elevation, so much this. And the camera missed it oh, because, yeah. again, it wasn't all laid out back back in the day. And they didn't have, you know, you had a script to look at what was happening. And they missed the whole shot. And my eyes were this big. I was like a kid sitting there, you know, watching Mickey Mantle hit one out of the park. And he, he said he never forgot the expression on my face because I was selling it. And, and when I looked down and realized the monitor missed it, I was so livid. I, I cut a promo. <laughs> I was like, you know, I was ready to go go in the truck and find somebody. So surely somebody got a shot of that so that you can replay. Because, uh, but to your point, you know, I knew there was something special about him that I know he had the longevity to, uh, to last and be so durable. Because, I mean, you know, everybody has injuries and things happen, but. But uh, you know, for you know, for him to to reinvent himself the ways that he did and and do the thing, I mean, it was smart. And he and he also by doing that, you know, probably helped his longevity because he wasn't having to take all these crazy bumps and do all the stuff when he went into the sting the crow kind of era deal and was more of a punching and kicking and and uh, you know different kind of character thing. Uh, it, it probably lent itself to you know more longevity, but he was charismatic from the beginning. I just always felt like he was a little uncomfortable in his own skin, almost like he just he wasn't comfortable being the the surfer boy, you know, God that they wanted him to portray. And I think when he finally got to go into that crow character, that he was completely in his lane, uh, you know, came out of his shell. And was able to you know even talk better, do everything better, and it you know it, it made him a, a bigger than life you know superhero as as a result of it. So you know, I told him the other night I was really proud of it because he's the one that picked up the mantle and went with it. When when I crashed and went down, there was no plan B, and they you know quickly you know signed the Road Warriors and Barry Windham and Sting and Lex and you know all these folks and. Nobody knew what was going to take off or what was going to happen. And and they pushed Sting, and, and he got over. He did the work. He he spent money on his outfits and always looked like a million bucks. And, uh, you know, he carried himself like somebody that's, you know, supposed to be the, the quarterback of the team and, and the, the face of the of, of the group uh, the way you're supposed to. And so I'm, I was really proud of, you know, what he became, and I let him know that. Wow. Yeah. And what a career. And to your point, like he really did open up as as the crow identity. And like you would notice how much his character was conveyed by just being silent and like body language and yeah. stuff like that is what super really, really stood out to for me to, as Sting. And I think to a lot of the fans, too, at that time was like he was such an anti-hero, but like still a good guy. You just didn't know what he was up to. And he had a good adversary in the NWO members at that time. And it's just like. Well, a little, a little antidote that I've never even told Greg when Brandon Lee was still living, mm -hmm. uh, 
Paul Heyman was involved in acting and different stuff and things going on. And he was wanting me to get involved with, with behind the scenes stuff a little bit. And because they were trying to get Brandon to be, you know, be able to come across a little heavier, stronger than he was in his way he was portraying the character. And, and the movie that he actually got killed accidentally on was one that, that, that they, they were talking to me about maybe they're doing some consulting or whatnot, but it was that character. It was that crow character. And then Sting actually got it, took that character, grew it, blew it up, made it his own, but took it to that level that they wanted to see coming out of Brandon Lee on the, on the movie screen. How about that? So you were like there, you're being uh, bent the ear up, so to speak for, for some well, I, I, you know, I, I was just glad to even be in, in any of the conversations but I, I watched that and it was so funny that, you know, I mean, Sting did all that on his own. That was, that was all his creative juices flowing. And, uh, you know, more, uh, if more people had the versatility to be able to do things like that. Uh, I mean, if you look at the guys that have been able, were able to rec- recreate their self, Chris Jericho, another great example of that. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he went from the WCW, you know, kid to, all the different, you know, iterations of him in uh, WWF, and what he's continued to do with his acting and his in his uh, music career and and everything else. So, you know, those guys, you know, th- got to be able to pivot. You can't just be one dimensional. You got to be listening, have your ear to the ground. And you know, I, th- I think Sting's done himself proud. I'm glad he got this run because his last little run in the in the WWE. Uh, wasn't the way he wanted to be remembered. No, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Um, Greg, uh, from a perspective of, of working in the AWA, and you mentioned even this last week too, and we'll touch upon this a little bit more later on here, but uh, you you mentioned too how like Vern was all about having like the sports legitimate background and the athletic background and stuff like that, and particularly wrestling in particular too. was. A bit oh, yeah. He, he, he liked that in the individuals because it was easier to take a guy that was an athlete and train them for wrestling than uh, some that weren't. Right. Um, a couple that I remember that that did well that uh, <laughs> was was Paul Persman, Buddy Buddy Rose. Oh, okay. Yes. You no, know, he uh, he would put up the ring and stuff like that, and he was kind of heavy, but he was pretty. Uh, he was he was athletic. <laughs> uh, you know, played softball and stuff like that, but he still had some natural ability. And and Vern trained him along with a, you know, 144 other wrestlers over the years, and um, he liked taking the athletes because they had been through. They know what it's like. And downs and get around them. Some people that come in from outside the sports world, uh, I, they don't catch on as quick because. They make it all about them, mm-hmm. you know, and, and their person and, and what they think they should be like. And really, you have something inside of who you really are. And athletes don't have that. Guys that have played football or, or uh, hockey, not too many hockey players have come in, but basketball would be good athletes to come into wrestling. Mm-hmm. You know, they know what it's like to have to work hard to get where you get. It just doesn't happen. 
And a lot of people that watch wrestling, they think, oh, I can do that. I can, I can be this guy. And they come in and they flounder around for, you know, eight or 10 years and then they get out of the business. Uh, but you have to have that proper training to get and, and really be successful. Well, my, my question too is going to be, um, how do you think uh, Vern would have took to Sting as a, as a, a member of the AWA in that? Not that well, he-, he was athletic. I mean, Sting, was, Sting would listen and, and he was good in the ring and he could produce. So Vern uh, would probably he'd, he'd let him be his own character and he would just maybe help him with his interviews or help him a little bit if he, he'd watch their matches and tell him, you know, here's what you did or here's what you should have done at this time and that. And um, that's how you learn. Right. Sting would have fit in good in the AWA because he could he could have a match, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and that's what you had to have in the AWA. You had to be able to wrestle. I mean, you know, tell the story. And if you couldn't, you didn't last long. Right, right. You're, you were short for the AWA then. You were short, um, yeah. Yep. So uh, they did not announce too on, on Dynamite, or it was revealed on Dynamite that uh, Sting's opponent for his final match are going to be, yeah, March 3rd coming up. Uh, Sunday, March 3rd is uh, pretty crazy. That's going to happen soon. But um, he will be facing, him and Darby Allen will be facing uh, the Young Bucks coming up. Um Magnum, it see, I was pretty surprised because I thought it would gonna be a singles match. Uh, you know, Sting might do the send off here, but it does make sense. You know, having a tag match and uh, Sting knows his limits and what he's capable of doing and still capable of having. How do you think uh, the Young Bucks are as an opponent for his for his final opponents? Great. Well, first of all, Darby is the perfect guy to be with Sting because that is like having a little Tasmanian devil in your pocket. <laughs> I mean, my gosh. I mean, fearless, throw his body out, do anything, you know, to, to, to get it done. And, you know, I was watching him before Sting came in and fascinated by the way he depicted things that would look so violent, like bending people's fingers, and just doing things that he did so well. And then I found out he's also a kamikaze on top of that, you know, so, you know, it, it, they're a great, great pair now for the to be the have been the young bucks i think it's kind of apropos in that the young buck there'd be no you know aew without the young bucks and and what they did along you know with cody and, and jericho and that group so uh you know it'll be great if those guys will you know make it be a, a fantastic memorable uh match and and things still capable enough that, uh, you know, he can uh, look like a million bucks with guys like that. They can move like they can, have the timing they do, the finesse, the professionalism. I mean, it, it'll it'll be good. It'll, it'll be a stellar final match and and uh, probably a very good call. Yeah, I agree. Call, I agree. I agree, too. Uh, yeah, Greg, agree. what do you think? Yeah, give your input on some of that. Oh, I think the, the, the Bucks and Darby are perfect for what they're going to do for Sting. You know, uh, they're the kind of people that really need to be in there to uh, give him what he deserves, the shine he needs at the end of his career. And I think it would be a fantastic match. Uh, T.A. hit it right on the head. You couldn't have, you know, three better people from that organization having that match for Sting. That's the way I feel. The movement that they could create in there, and I think the Young Bucks get uh, undervalued for the amount of, 
kind of like their personalities. They're so well known for their athleticism, but they can really play the roles of a, you know, pretty darn baby faces yep. and, and be very good heels, like obnoxious heels. So, uh, like they look at their look <laughs> this past Wednesday here and they got the, the pencil thin mustaches and, um, it's gonna be, they'll be perfect adversaries for the yeah. uh, for RB and Sting. I think it's gonna, I'm pretty excited. And I think it was a very, very savvy move on, I think Sting, the report is, I think Sting had some input on who his final opponents were going to be. And then obviously, um, Tony Khan's the one that pulled the trigger. So I think it'll be very exciting to see. I'm we should get, we should get Sting on our show before this final match. And that would be something here. Holy smoke. Wouldn't that be good? Oh man. Yeah. Let's get the let's like get the MJF on here too. Right. Well, let's talk about that real quick too. So yeah, you I made, guess, you I, made I guess I hit somebody <laughs> off, I guess. Right. You made some headlines around. I was, we were talking on the phone or a little earlier today and you're like, Oh, somebody sent me a link. And I was like, I should look. And I Googled your name and sure enough, <laughs> that was all that was showing is like what it was, but I get what you're saying. Now, a lot of people were being like, Oh, he's not, you were that you were kind of, they were kind of labeling you as saying like, Oh, he's not a star yet. But I mean, kind no. of the main aspect of it all is like, you were just saying, if he cleaned up the curse words, it would just be, right. he doesn't need that. He doesn't need he it. He doesn't need it. You know, as a champion, he reminds me a lot of Nick Bockwinkle. And Nick was sophisticated and arrogant and had that edge about him that you hated him. And he's got that. Plus, he can really work in the ring. Yeah. So you don't need to have the vulgar language to get yourself established. Be classy, but still be the heel. Well, be, be who he is, but you don't need to put that into it. I did not say he was not good. I think he's fantastic in the ring. Yeah. And I think we should get him on our show. I think we should get some of these guys on and kind of straighten them out a little bit. Straighten don't them you? Out. <laughs> put them on the right path. Magnum, what, what do you think about like? <laughs> him? Yeah. today. You say one thing about him, they all, oh, why didn't you say that? They don't like me. What the hell do they know about wrestling? <laughs> Oh shit! We know a little bit more than you do, I think. <laughs> a headline gets read, and then that's all a lot of people see sometimes. Or then they'll hear it from somebody else. Oh, did you hear what Greg Gagne said about you? And then they're oh, like, yeah. oh, well, screw that! You know what I mean? It's like a lot of context. I tend to do that. I even do that with my partners I'm with. I, I get them mad at me once in a while too. <laughs> <laughs> got to stir it up, Magnum. We didn't. I don't think I we got your input last week on an MJF overall. Let's get your thoughts on him. Well, I think he's amazing. And, and I mean, the, 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 the racy language isn't an MGF, MJF thing. It's an AEW thing. I mean, he's in an environment where that's, that's, you know, that's their watermark that they're dancing around. I mean, I, I don't really hold that on the talent. It, to me, that's a managerial kind of decision because if they didn't want it to be like that, it wouldn't be like that. It right. wouldn't be. Uh, if it, I guarantee you, if he ends up in the WWE, which I feel like that's, you know, probably where he'll be that, you know, we'll see really what all he really does bring to the table because he's, he's multifaceted. He reminds me a lot of Tully is who he reminds me of mm -hmm. because he's that size. He's that, you know, that quick go getter, smart alecky, you know, just, you know, kind of guy that can make you want to kill him and Tully was great at that make you just want to strangle him 
Yeah. And uh, and 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 want it and wants to be a heel. That that's the thing. You got to have a heel that doesn't secretly want to be a babyface. And when when MJF was in that lane and just you know bringing the hate, I mean he did it as good as anybody. And uh, and and li- and lived it vicariously through his persona. You know, if he was at public appearances, it didn't matter. You know, he stayed in character. And I think that's I think that's cool. Because, you know, people, you know, people kind of forget how the business, you know, again, was, you know, all those years ago. If you were nasty, dastardly person, you know, on TV, you weren't out kissing babies on the corner and shaking hands at church on Sunday to try to get in the newspaper. That wasn't, that wasn't how you made your money. And you might be that way inside, but that wasn't, that wasn't what you wanted to portray. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of cool to see that throwback of, uh, you know, somebody that says, hey, you know, I can do this 24-7. Watch me. Yeah. I think I even heard Orange say that he was a handful. And Orange was a pretty good jouster. And, uh, he, you know, he said that, uh, you know, the kid was on top of his game. He was uh, pretty sharp. Oh, that's the thing. He's like, he got my daughter's dog jumping on me. She's got to go out and go to the bathroom. So <laughs> that's okay. Take- I'll take a little break. I'll that's come okay. Go ahead. I, talking. Yeah, that sounds good, Greg. No, Magnum, I think you're spot on too with that. It's like um, he's such a student of the game, and you can kind of see in a lot of ways too. When um, I know he's like does the Fargo strut, and that's what they call it too when he does it. They don't call it like the nature boy strut or anything like that. So it's no. like he knows all that past history and stuff, and really respects a lot of that too. So I think no, it does. It pays homage because I mean, you know, you everything. Everything old can become new again, but there's all you know. There's things that were so good that they can be recreated and brought back around. And you know, Jeff Jeff Jarrett still does a good job doing that exact same thing and and pulling back stuff out of his hat from 10, 15, 20 plus years ago that still plays well today when it's done at the right timing, the right thing. That struck just you know amazing. Uh, so I mean, superstar Bill Dundee. I can name so many people. That uh, you know got mileage out of that strut and got heat or got pops, which you know whatever they're trying to do, it, it's like okay, that's a good one, you know, and it's not a cheap shot, and it just it works, you know. It's a uh, but I, I do I hope he lands on a really big stage because he's got MJF's got he's got the right stuff, and uh, mm-hmm. you know I, I like this I like to see him mixing it up, you know, in a, in a bigger pool of people. With you know with some different talent because you know it, the the storytelling part from a from the company perspective, not just the inner ring part, but getting invested in the characters and understanding the conflicts and things that they're in, I think that's the thing that the WWE has got so patented. I mean, they can they can storyboard out something and tell where they're going with something and where they're going to go week to week and. There's always something that keeps that thread of it going along week in, week out throughout all their programs. You still know the themes, you know, who's intertwined with who, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the feud with uh, Sensei Nakamura and, and Cody that's been ongoing. That saga is so masterfully done. And, you know, no, they can't draw them out three and four and six and eight months like we were able to do, but when they can weave it through six five, six, seven weeks of television, it, it makes for that episodic deal that kind of makes you, you know, want to see what's going to happen next. You know, these two, 
have done so much stuff to each other. Where's it going to go? Right. You know, and so it, you know, still, you know, still that storytelling works when it's done masterfully. Right. Uh, yeah, it definitely does. Absolutely. Um, well, th that leads me to something about the storytelling aspect is something that uh, people were really talking about last uh, this past Monday on Raw was the confrontation between Drew McIntyre and CM Punk. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, Bless you. thank you. Thank you. And uh, it was uh, I, I was really <laughs> immediately like McIntyre lost clean to to, uh, to Seth Rollins a couple weeks ago. And then he um, comes out here and they're like, well, he, he might be done with the company. People were thinking, what's next for him? He's kind of like, you know, he's he lost. But here he just immediately, I thought, reestablished himself in this statement. And like him and CM Punk really bounced back and forth. Greg, did you get a chance to watch this? Yeah, I watched, I watched it uh, live that night and I watched it again today. And uh, I'm a big fan of both both of them. Uh, McIntyre, his size, he really knows his, uh, what people expect out of him in the ring for his size and what he can do and how athletic he is and how he reacts to different things in the ring. And CM Punk, um, you know, like I say, I was with him down in, in Louisville and he's come a long ways and he's a phenomenal talker. He's great in the ring. And it should be interesting watching the two of them when they finally collide. I think you'll get back to a little, little more maybe storytelling in that match than what they've had in the past. But uh, it's a good storyline, I think, and uh, two great talents. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty excited. Magnum, what did, did you get a chance to watch it, or did you happen to see it? No, I didn't. But I'm a big Drew McIntyre fan, and I met him uh, over ten years ago when he was first with the WWE. And he came in and had the baby face look, and you know when he when they first kind of didn't know exactly what to do with him, he was like a big puppy. You know, they he got all this potential, but they, nobody knew exactly what to do. And you know, so he ends up parting ways and going down to TNA, and then morphed into the Drew McIntyre we see today. Became where he really became the Scottish warrior uh, in this new version of himself, and uh, you know. I think it's cool because we we saw his evolution into that character. Saw him start, you know, in like this fresh face and, you know, like, oh, my gosh, you know, this, you know, there, there's very few Randy Orton's in this world that have it all start to finish in one place. Most people had to go on a journey to, to find themselves and and go through all that metamorphosis and change. And, and Drew was just that kind of guy. Randy did it all under one umbrella, which is, you know, makes him so unique. But, but Drew is a, yeah, I mean, a, a big man that can talk, got the total package to look, you know, is, uh, you know, represented well as a world champion for the company. And, uh, you know, you, you just don't find guys that size, that athletic with charisma, all of it in one package, uh, you know, just every day. So, you know, Bigger, bigger version with all that excitement built into it. I mean, it's like they've got all these people bullets in their belt. They can pull the trigger and use any of them, and and you know hit a home run. And yeah. uh, you know, I'm I'm excited to see what they these guys are going to do in the next couple of months. I know they they set it up pretty well for everything. Yeah, they really did. Like I, I'm a Drew McIntyre fan too, also, and uh, and and a CM Punk, and that should be that's something that I'm gonna I'm gonna really. Follow along and see how they what the ending is on it. 
But they have, you know, there's a lot of good talent in there. I mean, the Usos and, and, and Roman Reigns. I mean, Ro Roman Reigns to me is phenomenal. And I can't wait to see the matchup with him and Randy Orton. Yeah. I mean, or Orton is, uh, uh, I was with him when he was early in his career at the, at the WWE. And of course, I worked with his dad quite a bit in the past. And he's just a chip off the old block and um, fantastic timing, when to do something, when not to. And he can, he can talk great and he's got the look. And uh, him and Reigns should have some unbelievable matches also. I'm anxious to see that one. What they're, And it sounds like what they're going to do is they're having the Fatal 4-Way here coming up at, uh, yeah. at the Royal Rumble. But it sounds like they want to put a pin in that match between Reigns and Orton because they know there's money in it later on down the line. So well, uh, probably, I guess, WrestleMania looks like it's going to be the rock and uh, Reigns, I would imagine. Yeah. That's uh, We talked about it last week too. It's like, yeah. what, what are they going to do and how are they going to lay it all out? I, I think Magnum, you had a good answer for that one. I thought I was pretty. Uh, well, yeah. I've, I've laid it out there. I'm not going to say it again. They, they, they can go back and watch the recording. That's right. Go to tune in to magnumcom If you want to see that clip. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you do it yeah that's how you do it yeah um, what a fascinating kind of aspect i i wanted to talk and you touched upon it here a little bit magnum was that mcintyre left and he, he kind of reestablished himself on the indies and then on tna and then boom came back in nxt and boom like and sure he's been pushed and pulled a little bit and kind of floated around and now it's kind of like coming back to fruition where he's like such a big star but I wanted to kind of get both of your guys' experiences with this uh, in the early days when you guys were in your primes and everything. Uh, Magnum, from the perspective of somebody leaving a territory, so to speak, and then kind of coming back, did you kind of see that happen in a lot of ways with a certain talent that stands out to you back in the day? I, I did, and I personally didn't see it the way you're – like the way we're talking about now, it was like, because I was part of the, that group when it was all being consolidated. Right. So, right. so it wasn't like I, like I only, the longest run I had, well, I was a year and a half in, in mid South and every, every move I made was kind of like an elevation in, in what I was doing. And it wasn't, I'm not saying one territory was better than another. It was that I got, myself in a better position to be capable of being in a better position as I got another opportunity somewhere. So because, because the, the territories were being shrunk, then everybody was just coming, coming to where we were. I mean, we were, we were like a magnet for it because I felt, I mean, I, I laughed. I told somebody that I was the Pied Piper when I left this out because we were on, they were on fire and they're selling out and, doing all this business and I got browbeat for leaving to go somewhere that was, was floundering. And when we turned it around and it blew up this big deal, every single one of them with the exception of JYD uh, and, and Jim Duggan and Ted DiBiase came where I was at. And, it, you know, the other ones went up North and it, and it was just two places. So I didn't see like the going in being a big star going out or coming back in and have a different run other than guys like the road warriors maybe, or, or Andre, when they would come and go and come in help for four or six weeks, have a little run with you and leave. 
but but I wasn't ever around to see big stars coming and going, you know, like like what you're saying and that deal. It was more the the journey kind of thing for me and people, you know, just elevating themselves to that next level. Yeah, that kind of growth of everything going on. For like, yeah, you building your way, and then those stars coming back, and you you seeing them. And I saw it the other way. Okay, yeah, let me let's hear, Greg. We had a guy named the Crusher. Yeah, and he was a he was a heel for a long, long time. Him and Dick the Bruiser, and uh, he wrestled in the AWA, and he had a, a stint up in uh, in New York and Pittsburgh in New York with uh, Bruno. And then when he came back to, to Minneapolis or to the AWA, he had a whole different image. He was, uh, people accepted him. He was a rough guy. He smoked a cigar. He was from Milwaukee. He was called uh, Milwaukee. Just, you know. Got on his shoulder and he just, he's an average, you know, beer drinking guy. And he really fit in as a baby face then. And then he had heels to work against like Mad Dog Bashan. And I mean, they beat the hell out of each other all the time. And Mad Dog was no fun to get in the ring with. And the same thing happened with, with Mad Dog down the road. You know, he was so vicious and so mean all the time that eventually the people turned him. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. He liked him because he could go up against anybody and they knew he was going to give them a battle. Seeing a Baron Von Raschke was another one with the iron claw, with the claw. You know, he... He wrestled as a as a heel for a long time, and he's one of my dad's. My dad trained him, wow. and uh, wrestled as a heel. Uh, he he was struggling a little bit, and uh, Mad Dog told my dad Vern when he says, "Let me take him to Montreal for the summer." Well, Jim Raschke, Baron von Raschke, was a just a guy from Nebraska, uh, a national champion wrestling, you know, uh, freestyle, uh, Greco-Roman style uh, on the Olympic team. And uh, came back from being with Mad Dog. I mean, he was just a nice guy, and he wasn't getting over. Well, one summer with Mad Dog up in Montreal and Quebec, he came back just like the Mad Dog, and people hated him. <laughs> hated him for a long, long time, and then eventually the people turned him. Yeah, wow. Gave him the right opponents, and he turned over, and they loved him. Throw him up against Nick Bockwinkle for the title, and all of a sudden he's the people are cheering him. So, <laughs> you know, it's it, it's it's amazing how the public at that time how you could how you could juggle them mm-hmm. and make them like you or hate you. <laughs> that's great. Oh you know? man, yeah. What yeah. a perfect example that is, because that's yeah, that's what I was curious about. If he saw and yeah, sure enough, somebody like Vern yeah. Brashke, dang. Well, shit, Brashke wrestled Vern. In, in uh, White Sox Park, you know, in front of 40,000 people, and they hated him. <laughs> Three years later, he comes back, and he can be Vern's partner. And he's, oh, geez, they cheered the hell out of him. He hasn't changed his style at all, and his interviews were great. So uh, it's uh, it's an interesting business. It really How about is. it? How about it, huh? Yeah. Jeez. Well, I guess, hey, that leads us that'll lead us into our spotlight this week, I think. Um, and funny enough, Greg, you know this person. It's your dad. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, Vern Gagne. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, remember that guy? Well, yeah. um, I wanted to get just your insight here, uh, just his early beginning, so to speak. Like, how did he get – like, he's known to be a three-sport athlete and uh, no. things like that. But, like, how did he – the early beginnings of him 
getting into the pro wrestling business because there's the the legit. He always was, he used to watch wrestling or, or uh, go down to the matches or listen to it on the radio with his grandfather. Mm-hmm. And okay. he always wanted to be a wrestler. And he finally wrestled in high school. He was a state champion uh, for four years. He went on to the University of Minnesota. He was the NCAA champion three years, Big Ten champion four years in a row. And then he, he wrestled uh, in, the, in the 1948. He was on the he was an alternate on the Olympic wrestling team. He wrestled uh, Dick Hutton to see who would get the, the spot in the Olympics. And Vern was always a freestyle wrestler. And if you contain your opponent for a number of minutes, you got points for riding time. So he got he rode this Dick Hutton the whole time, but it was Greco-Roman, so it did, they didn't make anything, and they awarded the match to Hutton because he had more Greco-Roman moves than Vern did, and that's why he didn't get on. He got on the Olympic team as an alternate, uh, and then when he came back, he got his start in Minneapolis, and he wrestled a guy named Abe King Kong Cashy, and he played football at Minnesota. He was an All-American football. And uh, some of his other guys that were important in the, in the state of Minnesota, Billy Bai, Jim Olaski, Harvey Solon. And those four came down to watch him wrestle. And he wrestled this Abe King Kong Cashy. And Cashy had him up to the ropes and he was choking him. And the four of them jumped up and Cashy leaned over and he said, hey, punks, sit down. <laughs> and they all sat down and they were quiet the rest of the match. So Vern got down to the match. He wrestled about 18 minutes. He won by disqualification. And they told him that he was too small, so they sent him to Tulsa, Oklahoma. He bought a trailer, and uh, my mom and I, I was two or three years old at the time, got in this trailer and drove down to Tulsa, Oklahoma. First week there, he wins the light heavyweight championship. And it's amazing what, I mean, I'm 75 now, but I still remember he would come home and where the trailer was parked, there was a drive-in theater across the way and we could see it, but we couldn't hear it. Mm-hmm. And when he'd come home, I'd still be, I'd get up, he'd put me on his shoulders and we'd watch a little bit of the movie. Couldn't hear it, but I could see it. But I can still remember that in my mind. And I can remember driving down the road with him and he would always sing songs and we'd have to sing together. But then he got a call back to Minneapolis. And when he came back there, uh, you know, everything worked out for him. And from there, we just uh, we moved back there, and and uh, the rest is history. Well, who, who did he learn from down in Oklahoma and stuff like that? Who did he train with? Him? Well, he, he trained he trained with a guy named Joe uh, Joe Pazendak in Minneapolis. Joe broke him in, and then after that, he just basically learned on his own. I mean, he had you know instructions from some of the, the older guys would help him after his match, tell him what he did or what you didn't do, but most of it he learned on his own, and. Um, you know, when he, when he came back and he started, he started on the DuPont network, it ran from 50 to 57. And, uh, you know, he was, he was on there every week and he became their big star. Mm-hmm. He was the U S champion. And then Lou Thez was the NWA champion and Lou would come in, you know, just once in a while, but Vern was there every week. So Vern was actually the first athlete in 1950 besides Babe Ruth that made over a hundred thousand dollars. So, I mean, 
he, he was that popular nationwide. So finally, he, he bought into the Minneapolis territory. That's where he wanted to come back. Uh, when the network closed down in 1957, he came back, bought in, and he developed, he knew how strong, what TV meant for professional wrestling. So that was what he did. He went and uh, all those TV stations we were on. I mean, we were on from Minneapolis down to St. Louis, all the way to the West Coast, and then across Canada. We were in Winnipeg, and they had taped those matches and put us eventually on the TSN across Canada. So, I mean, when they talked about territories, uh, we covered more territory than anybody else in the country. McMahon had the big cities in the East Coast. Charlotte was on fire. Uh, Florida was on fire, but they they had their areas. But as far as what we had to do in traveling wise, we were we were all over the place, and we had fabulous ratings, unbelievable. We had a we had a twenty two rating or twenty four rating in Minneapolis, and and with all our uh, all our uh, televisions network, we averaged over a twenty. And we had a 64% share of the audience. The only uh, TV that beat us was 60 Minutes. They had the same rating at 24, but they had a 65 share. We had a 64 share. Jeez. So, yeah, you, know, you mentioned was, that last week. Fire. Yeah, we were wow. on fire. And he created yeah. that whole thing. You know, and he, he, you know, he, he, he wanted to develop talent. And he brought all the talent. He would send them out and bring them back when they got you know, ready to come into the AWA, but he, he create he trained 144 wrestlers. Jeez. I'll give you some of the names. Rick. Yeah. Flair. That, that's what I was going to ask next. <laughs> Lars Anderson, uh, Jack Lanza and black Jack. Bruce, Mulligan. Start over, start over. Uh, Greg. You, you dropped out real quick. Start over Rick Flair. Did I? Yeah. Okay. I don't know why I started with Rick. He was in our class, but Rick Flair, Ricky Steamboat, Gene Oley and Lars Anderson, Larry and Kurt Henning, Blackjack Lance and Blackjack Mulligan, Bulldog Bob Brown, uh, Gills the Fish Poisson, also wrestled as Alex the Butcher and uh, Louis Cree, uh, Bob Bruggers, Greg Gagne, Jim Brunzel, uh, Jimmy Valiant, the Valiant Brothers, uh, Dale Hay, was Buddy Smith or Buddy Roberts. Yeah. Uh, Baron Von Raschke, Dick Ackless, the Bruiser, Dick the Bruiser, Paul Ellering, Ken Patera, the Iron Sheik, Bob Remus, Sergeant Slaughter, Buck Zumhoff, Scott, the Irwin brothers, uh, Dale Lewis, that's guy in a pass and another great amateur wrestler. Uh, let's see, Dennis Stamp, Bob Brower, Chris Taylor, Paul Pershman, Brad Ringens, uh, and of course, John or Nord the Barbarian, and that's only part of them. Right. Didn't he work? Didn't he? Was now am I mistaken? Did he help train uh, superstar Billy Graham and did he help train uh, Jesse Ventura too? Was that, or am I mistaken? Well, Je Jesse, Jesse trained by a guy named Eddie Sharkey, who mm -hmm. uh, was a local guy in Minneapolis. Uh, and he trained, he also had the Road Warriors, guys mm -hmm. like that, but Eddie never train them in the really good fundamentals, you know, and, and I mean, Jesse couldn't hold his hands up really, mm -hmm. but, and when he came back to, I mean, he could talk, Jim and I came back, Brunzel came back from Japan and did a week in Hawaii and we had to wrestle uh, Jesse Ventura 
and his partner was another bodybuilder. And oh my God, to have a match with those two was very tough. And, but Jesse could talk and Jesse was from Minnesota. He wanted to come home. And I told my dad, I said, you know, he, he can talk, but Jesus, he's, he's horrible in the ring. <laughs> so Adrian Adonis had just come in and Adrian was a heck of a hand. Yeah. Adrian was unbelievable. So he teamed those two up as the East West connection and they were very successful. And we had, we had some great matches with them, you know, worked around Jesse. And uh, even though if you talk to Jesse, he, he was the guy who couldn't have done it without him. But <laughs> he, he couldn't make anybody look too good in the ring. <laughs> you know, we made him look good, but vice versa, it didn't work out too well. Not <laughs> <laughs> so much. Yeah. He, <laughs> he didn't know how to take a bump too well or anything. He didn't like taking them. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was just, uh, it was, it was a, it was a different era then. And, um, you know, Vern was, had that background of amateur wrestling and he trained everybody. Our, our camp was six hours a day, six days a week. And maybe I've told the story, if I haven't cut me off, but in an old barn with a light bulb above it, no windows in it. We were on the second floor. We had Ric Flair, honest to God, he quit twice. That's what I heard. Yes. We had him convinced that you had to dive out this window on the second floor and land in the horse crap down below. <laughs> and he, he quit twice because we never told Vern, but Vern came to camp one day and, and was getting, or it was getting winter time and it was freezing down there. And God, how are we going to hit that hard? Jesus, that down there, that hard dirt, that crap. And he's all sweating about it. So he was living next door. It was Bob Breggers and Patera and myself on one side and him and his wife in a duplex. And uh, Vern came to the camp. He says, where's Rick? And I said, well, he quit. Said, what do you mean he quit? I said, well, he quit. Well, he had Billy Robinson. Billy, you run the guys through. I'm going to go get Flair. And so he goes back and knocks on the door, and his wife, Leslie, answers. He says, Vern says, where's Rick? Well, Vern, he quit. He said, tell him to come out here. So Rick came out, and he said, what are you doing? Well, I just, I don't think I can make it, Vern. i got to quit. And Vern open-handed him and knocked him right on his ass. He said, get up and get in my car. We're going out to the camp. It happened twice to Rick. <laughs> Two different times. But... You know, he, he hung it out and I don't remember what happened to him. I don't know if he made it. Yeah, I know. It sounds like I, it's not a name I recall, to be honest. Oh, he's still around. <laughs> no, he did quite well for himself. Did pretty good. Did pretty good. Yeah, not too bad. Yeah. Magnum, what? Um, We'd have loved to have Magnum in the, in the, in the AWA. I could imagine. That's kind of where with I'm his, With his amateur background and that, Vern would have taken him and the rest has been pushed aside. Meg, what was the scuttlebutt you heard about like work people trained by Vern and stuff like that when uh, a lot of those guys crossing through the uh, the areas that you were at for wrestling? Well, they just, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, friends with Ricky and, you know, Ricky Steamboat and, and Rick. And, and I mean, they just told, I mean, they, they told stories of, of, of Greg's dad that he was just the toughest son of a gun they'd ever been around their entire life. And, uh, and of course, you know, being from growing up in the, in Virginia and being just around the regionalized promotions I, I grew up around, I didn't even know the AWA existed until I was, you know, in my my you know late teens because I didn't I hadn't seen it, I hadn't seen the product. But uh, the you know what those guys went through in the camps. I, I mean, just past weekend, I just confirmed 
that story again. I was sitting there with my my son, and, and Rick came and sat down at a table and had, had his dinner with us. And and I said, I said, how about that training camp with with, uh, with Fern? And he said, he said he came and, and drug me out twice. He said I quit two times, and he went lucky. <laughs> and uh, but they all, you know, they've all said the same thing. But it all molded that work ethic and respect for the business. Uh, you know, in into all those guys that you know all ultimately went on to become great stars, and it you know, it was because of their potential, obviously, that they had the chops to be able to go on and make some of themselves. But if you don't have a foundation, it's it's hard to have something to build from. And it's been you know, there's been guys that come down different paths, and and I certainly had a completely different path myself. But they all kind of revolved around you had to either sink or swim or produce, or you were just going to be a statistic. Because to Greg's point, you know, so many guys, you know, found themselves in the business and in and out six, eight, ten years and never made it, you know, above a, you know, opening match type performer. And and I'm not saying there's something, nothing wrong with that because it takes everybody to have a card. You've got to have, you've got to have carpenters and people that, help set the stage and do the things and, and set you up the main events. But as it evolved in what Greg and I saw the business become, it became where from the opening match to the main event, everybody had to be excellent. And there was no spot for newbies wanting to learn. You might be on television and be involved in a squash match and be a newbie, but you wouldn't be on a hundred thousand dollar card uh, and even be the opening match if you couldn't go out there and, you know, and give them a main event match. And that's what it became. So the, the, the things that his dad instilled in people and the respect about the business that we all, you know, love so much was, you know, while we've got this bond today here, 30, 40 years after the fact, we're all tied together. Like we were, you know, in the, we were fighting for the country or, or, you know, in, in the blooming mob or something, you can't, don't get out of the business once it's in your blood. You're in it forever. <laughs> Sting's the perfect example. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, um, what I want to follow up to, Greg, how long, when Vern trained people, how long did he take for him to kind of smarten people up a little bit? Or like, <laughs> what was the threshold of that, basically? Jim Brunsell, give a great story. Okay. His, now it's his first match. We're out of the camp. His yeah. first match. He's in the locker room. I forget who he's wrestling. And uh, he's nervous as heck. And he's just going to go out to the ring. And Vern stops him and he says, Jim, you're going over tonight. Here's where it's going to be. Boom, boom, boom. It's, it's like Jim said, the air finally went out of him. <laughs> On the way to the ring, smartened him up. <laughs> That's when he smartened us up. Wow! How about that? I mean, yeah, it was, it was, it was mind. I mean, he never did, never did, boy. And I'll tell you, um, our training camp was it was tough. It was six hours a day, six days a week, and in the, the last hour, we had to do submission wrestling with Vern and Billy Robinson. And, you know, and they'd show you about four different holds. And then they'd get on the mat with you and we'd get in one at a time and they'd put the arm out there. You go, oh yeah, the arm. And then as you go to do it and put the hold on, they would reverse it and stick your foot right up your ass, you know? 
<laughs> you're, you're screaming, oh my God, you know? So it was, it was pretty, uh, it, it was pretty intense. But when we came out of there, we were prepared and we were ready. And in fact, I remember one of the first matches Rick and I had against each other. We were in Peoria, Illinois, and we're on the first match. And it's a 20-minute 20 minute draw. Two minutes into the match, I body slam Rick, and the, and the ring caved in. <laughs> and he was, he was down there, and the referee slid down. I dove down and covered Rick. <laughs> and the referee, did I lose you? No, you're still there. Oh, okay. My damn phone, I took it upstairs. Oh, it's it up, Joe. <laughs> Sorry about it. Rick, it's Flair calling. Yeah, hey, Nate. He doesn't want any more stories about it. What's happened? Stop, stop so, yeah, talking. I down on Rick and covered him one, two, kicked out. And we wrestled a 20-minute draw with the ring caved in. Oh, my God. And that was only our second match we'd ever had. And we came back to the locker room, and Nick Bockwinkle, Ray Stevens, they grabbed us to the side, and they said, guys, I don't. We don't think anybody else in the business could do what you guys just did. It was phenomenal. So then it goes back to it wasn't us. It was how we were trained, and 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 we could handle something like that. I mean, we were prepared, and I guess that's that's the message that was sent. Wow. And you mentioned his name too, uh, Brad Reagans, and yeah. like a lot of people credit him for like the what he instilled into people too, and so like that being transitioned down from him to, you know, other people that Reagan's was known to train. It, it really speaks to Vern. Well, well, Ver, uh, Brad kind of took over the training camp for Vern. Mm -hmm. uh, Vern would go out there once in a while, but a guy named uh, Leon White. Oh. Where did he wrestle by? Uh, Vader. Vader. Yep. We're in Denver wrestling and the matches are over and we're in the hotel and this guy, guy comes up he said, I'm a representative for uh, Leon White here. And I said, well, who's Leon White? And he's 340 pounds sitting down on the table there, the cowboy hat on. And he said, well, he played for the Los Angeles Rams. He was an All-American at uh, Colorado, University of Colorado, played football there, played for the Rams, and he wants to wrestle. And he's, and you know, he, he beats people up in the bar all the time. And I said, well, he should, he's 340 pounds. Well, that's what he do to your wrestlers. And I said, there's not a wrestler here that he could handle. <laughs> I said, he can try me if he wants. I'll knock the crap out of him right here. You know, and I, he's looking like this. So we finally got him to come and he came to the camp. And, and I told him, I said, you know, here's a guy over here, Brad Ringens. He was on the first match. You couldn't beat him. He didn't know back, <laughs> Brad's background, right? So uh -huh. Brad gets him in the camp. And I told Brad about him. He had Leon crying after about 20 minutes. He wanted to quit. The big guy, 340 pounds, he's crying. Brad is tying him up a notch, just, just having him scream, just did a number on him, throwing him around. You know, he had he had no idea, you know, and, and people coming into the sport of wrestling, if they don't have that background, they think anybody can do it. There's so much technique to it and so much you have to learn and do. It, it's it's ungodly to become you know to get to that level where you're you can wrestle in the main events and and you know put people's asses in the seats right and like it's you an look amazing, at it's an amazing uh sport it really is it's right you know, everybody thinks they can do it and it's easy ta will tell you it's it's not it's it's like 
a dad that plays around with their kids and, you know, like, and their kids keep getting bigger and they like to wrestle around with them. And they think, man, this, I get tired doing this kind of quick, this, this kind of stuff. And I, you're getting too big for this. When you get out there with a bunch of grown men from 250 to 300 pounds that are all making contact, that are all in motion and are doing something actively for anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour. And the physicality that takes place just when you make contact is so severe that I've never been in a street fight in my life that even remotely compares to the brutality of what we did for the sake of entertaining people. Mm -hmm. And it was almost comical because whenever you would get in, you know, something happened outside of our world, I would like, first of all, people aren't that size. I was used to being around people that were 30, 40, 50 pounds bigger than me. And the average guy, and, you know, the average guy would walk around the streets a, a buck 70, you know. And, and, and so, you know, I tried to, you know, tell them, you know, you would, you would have to literally like hit me with the kitchen sink and everything with it for me to even register it because I'm just used to getting potatoed left, right, upside down, you know, and doing it to others too in the sake of making sure you don't see through what I'm doing because we're fighting out on the floor. We're fighting all over the place. And I mean, you know, there, there was no leg slapping to make a sound effect when, when, when we were having the act match, you know, we, or, or, or when Nikita and I were in the Russian chain match and that thing spins around and smacks you in the head and goes crack, you know, I mean, all those things were, were very physical they were dangerous, and and even if you knew what you're doing, you were going to get hurt to a degree. But you got so used to that, your mental toughness and physical toughness was on such a level that I mean, something really drastic would have to happen for you to even put it over and yeah. and to sell it. I mean, seriously, because I mean, you know, got the road warriors, for instance. I mean, road warrior animal throw you off the ropes. He's 320 pounds and gives you a scoop power slam, and when you spin through the air and you hit the mat at a 20-mile-an-hour impact with a 300-pound body on top of you, that would put most people in the hospital for a number of months, and you're getting up and selling and, and going on and wrestling another 20 minutes, you know, after something like that. And that was the what we were doing seven days a week. And that that's the hard part for people to wrap their head around. You know, when I was a kid watching, I used to think, oh, when they come to my town, you know, like that's the only time these guys are wrestling all week. I didn't realize they were doing this seven days a week. And thinking then, oh, and oh, by the way, there's TV and there's matinees on Sunday and, you know, all this stuff. And you can go 11, 12 times in, in a week. And, oh, by the way, if you're selling out, you're not going to get a day off for maybe 90 days. And so if, if you're not tough, you're not going to make it through. You don't get paid if you don't play. And there is no stand-in for you. So you, you either get in that groove and become the ever-ready you know, money that can just go and go and go. And oh, by the way, you still got to be able to stay up all night and 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 play all the the drinking games and everything else to get that going on. On top of that, your yeah. mental toughness gets challenged even more. So you got to be in shape. You got to be a superior athlete. You got to be able to to out drink anybody and out fight anybody and never be late for work. Outside that, it's easy. Yeah, well, it yeah. seems like a cakewalk. <laughs> I, mean, I want to do it now. <laughs> oh, Jesus. It, it takes a good six weeks, though. 
you know, we do we do a thousand bumps a day in an hour, and and hit the ropes for an hour, and you know, it'd tear all the skin off your body, and you were black and blue, and that lasts for about six weeks, and then all of a sudden it would all go away. I remember one night I came home and uh, my wife had left a cupboard open, and I banged my head on it, split me open, I hit it pretty hard, and I just kept going, and she goes, "You're bleeding." You know, but I, I had, I really didn't even, you know, I felt the bump, but didn't know it was that bad. But uh, to, to what TA is saying, your body hardens up and you can, you can absorb that punishment majority of the time. Amazing. Sometimes when you can't take it though. Back to music. It's like when you play guitar and you get calluses. You get, you get my, when I were wrestling Stan Hansen and, and uh, Bobby Duncan tag team match, Jim and I, Jim had a hell of a drop kick and he hit Hanson with a drop kick and Stan flew and landed in the ropes. He was kind of out of it and he starts to get up. So Jim tags me in and old Stan sees me and he nails me and he sluts me up on the turnbuckle. And this was in Winnipeg, threw me from one turnbuckle all the way to cross the ring into the other one upside down. And I laid there and I tagged Jim quit. And all I said was, you asshole. <laughs> you can have him back and by then then stan and took take duncan back in and i said you know i've talked to stan about him since he says yeah i remember that yeah jim knocked you out and he took it all out on me <laughs> yeah, it was him he did it <laughs> yeah then, then we had king kong brody and hansen we had him in a in a tournament match in japan you know and, and uh we're in, we get out in the ring and we're standing there talking and, and, uh, all of a sudden I said, I said, geez, look out. And man, I get hit with a cowbell. Jim gets hit with the chain out of the ring. We go through the people. They hit us with a fire extinguisher. We both got cut up. We haven't even, the match hasn't even started. They're coming back and Hanson can't see too good. And this one little Japanese guy got up and the chair went down. So I took it. And I threw it like a freeze frisbee at Hanson, hit him right on the ridge of the nose. His feet went up, busted his nose. And we ended up rushing 34 minutes like that. And the, at the end, Brody had Jim, and I came off the top rope with an elbow, dropped him to his knees. And I see Jim go flying out of the ring, over the ring. Hanson threw him out. And I look up, and Brody bear hugs me, relaxed my arms in, and his head's here. He's on his knees. And Hanson comes firing across the ring and gave me the lariat. And that was the last thing I remembered. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> and then we had to meet him in the finals of the thing. It ended up uh, the four of us in the finals. So we had <laughs> just knocked down matches with them. And they were, they were so physical. When Brody kicked you, you thought your head was up in the balcony. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was. But you know what? If you fought them, they respected you. And we earned their respect. That's was, what I hear about Brody. Yeah, it's like if yeah. you you messed back with him, if you were able to fight back at him, he would respect yeah. you even more. And that, that would yeah. definitely that kind of got you across through. So, how well, he, he worked in, in the AWA. He worked with Jerry Blackwell, and then with Sergeant Slaughter. And on both of them, he walked out of the ring, and he told the promoter Wally Carbo, "What do you think of that?" And he says, "We well, could have a match." So I don't want to work with him. Really. He pointed at me, says, I want to work with him. I said, I don't want to work with you. <laughs> <laughs> so then ended up, I worked a little program with him, but kind of did it in tag team matches. He took Nord the Barbarian and 
and uh, I had uh, I had Jim back. Wow. So, well, he was you know if you earned their respect, you had good matches with them. But yeah. he didn't he didn't like working with he didn't like working with you, boy. It was a tough like, night. It was tough know. anyhow, but uh, you know it was it was interesting. Man, we'll be covering Vern plenty on here, more so moving forward, obviously, and throughout the whole series of this show. But I did want to ask real quick, Greg, before we get to the action figure aspect of it, did now I guess this will be a two part question. Did Vern want you, like, did he always kind of motivate you to get into wrestling? And certainly, did you always want to be into wrestling? Like, I wanted to play pro football. Okay. They wanted to do. I know my dad took me to a match. Oh, God, I was probably six or seven years old in the St. Paul Auditorium. Kinji Shibuya Mitsuarakawa wrestled the Koloff brothers, and all four of them were bloody and messy afterwards. And they were, we walked, my dad walked me down the hallway, and there was different locker rooms. And I look in the one, and there's Mitsuarakawa and Kinji Shibuya, the doctor stitching them up. And then he goes, and there's the two Russian Takamakov brothers. They're getting stitched up. And my dad used to tell me, he said, Greg looked up at me and said, Dad, one thing I know for sure, I never want to be a wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> but after I got out of college, I, I kind of I, I told him when he was having this camp, I said, Dad, I'd like to wrestle. He said, what makes you think you can wrestle? Oh. I said, well, I wrestled you my whole life. I mean, shit, every, every time I was home, you were taking me downstairs and, you know, wrestling on the mat. And I said, you know, and I played football with Jim Brunzel. And I said, we got a guy, Rick Flair, that wants to join. So um, he said, we'll give you a shot then. But, uh, you know, he made it made it very difficult. And and then uh, the hardest thing, and he said, you have to learn how to be yourself because you're going to you're going to take a lot of crap from a lot of people, you know, because of me, Vern. He said, so uh, don't try to be me. Try to be your who you are, who you really are. Be yourself. And he said, you actually knew how to wrestle when he when I was about 12 or 13, my six year old sister, we used to I, when my grandparents would come over, we would do a wrestling match for him and I'd be taking bumps for her and her throwing me around and then she'd clamp the sleeper on me and I'd go out. <laughs> I was really working at about 12 years old. <laughs> there, yeah, you, you might not have been smart enough, but you were doing it. You were doing it. <laughs> yeah. And then I came home from college we're, uh, playing quarterback out at Wyoming to have Christmas break. And then we have our, our winter football where we have to go back. And we get I get home and Vern says, come on, let's go downstairs. We put all the furniture in. My mom went, no, no, you can't be doing this. <laughs> oh, guys. So we're doing the wrestling. And, you know, and he's holding me down and I'm getting pissed off. I can't get away from him. So finally, I elbow him in the nose. And when I did, he would <laughs> crack two ribs. Oh, my <laughs> Honest to God. So now I got to go back to Wyoming, right? <laughs> and we got winter winter going, and, and we got to do these sprints to start with. And Christ, I'm dying. And the coach says, are you that out of shape? He said, what's wrong with you? I said, well, coach, I was, I got on the floor with my dad. We used to wrestle in the, in the basement all the time, and he cracked a couple of ribs. And of course, all the coaches are laughing their ass off, you know, down in. Uh, but that that was a interesting little episode in the life of my father <laughs> how about that <laughs> yeah but um you know he just uh i was very fortunate 
really what it was. We finally wrestled in a tag team match one night. Uh, only three times in my life did he ever give give us any kudos. Really? My last football game as in high school, I uh, threw it was like twelve out of fourteen passes for two hundred or three hundred yards. Ran for a hundred and some, and he came down and he told me, "I'm proud of you, son." And then, uh, then the next one was Jim and I wrestled Tito Santana and Rick Martel in San Francisco in the Cow Palace. Mm-hmm. We're the champions, and it's a big card that night. We're we're on the semi or the double main event. So Martel and Santana walk out to the ring, and the Cow Palace and the people were so hard. And as we walk out, they're all going, boring, bullshit, boring. And we're going, oh, my God. We must be, I guess we're going to get cheered then. That's Martell and, and uh, hey, there Tito. There goes the phone again. So And Tito. So then um, we walk out, and we get the same thing. So for 18 minutes, we're supposed to go 20-some minutes. For 18 minutes, Jim and I are just fighting out of holes and doing spots and they're getting us back in it. And from boring bullshit, all of a sudden at about 18 minutes, we got them standing. So then we, we ended up going 45 minutes with them and we just, we had them up and down and up and down. And we came back into the locker room, everybody, Bachwinkle, Stevens, everybody on the card came up to us at Werner's last. And he said, I'm proud of you guys. That's the best match I've ever seen. He took me aside and said, that was one of the other kudos he gave me. And then the third time is we were wrestling a tag match, Vern and I against Saito and Bachwinkle. And it was, you know, Vern was probably in 65 at the time. But uh, so I carried most of the match. And after the match, he came up and he said, you're better than me. I'm proud. So those are the three, three times that he ever gave me any credit. Wow. Like they, they meant a lot. I bet it they did. Yeah. Like yeah. The, the rare that happens, it's like the more yeah. impact it makes. <laughs> yep. So, you know, it was, it was tough coming. You know, I wasn't trying to be like him. I was trying to be myself. And he said, that's the way you have to do it. And don't pay any attention to what they say. You're going to get a lot of negative things. You're too small. You can't do this. You can't do that. Just go in and do your thing. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're talking. and sight and make some good comebacks and uh, got our, got got established that way. That's what you got to do, right? Yeah. So I was uh, very, very fortunate. And it was, it was a good, uh, a good run for me. Well, cool. This is fascinating. And I, I'm really looking forward to seeing more, getting more perspective of Vern's ideas and what his mindset was throughout this whole thing as we talk like further on, on the, on these episodes and stuff. Um, real quick, you guys, uh, let's talk about the figure itself, uh, the Vern Gagne figure that uh, Power Town Series One. Um, I don't know, Magnum, d- have you had more experience with this, or where? G- give us a little details on some of this, if you guys want to. Well, the, the, first, first of all, the, the thing that our artists, you know, were really priding themselves on was making these figures to scale. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, you see so many things that are like really exaggerated in, uh, you know, just the action figure world in general. And we tried to, to do these things to where if you, if you put all of our, our figures in a row and the true heights of the, of the individuals, 
you'll see that difference in each one of them. And, and we really, you know, took some strides in doing that and wanting them to have more of a realistic look to them than a exaggerated like superhero look with a waist that's so skinny that, you know, it couldn't possibly, you know, be in real proportion. And, you know, and in doing so, you know, not only are the head sculpts absolutely amazing, but the bodies really are truly more representative of what, you know, the different athletes look like. I mean, it's still a little exaggerated in some places, but in generally the scale, the waist size, the, the girth, the, the height, the leg size, all that stuff, they're more in proportion, you know, kind of in reality of, of where the guys were at. And uh, I think it made them a marketably different product. So he didn't just look like we were throwing a, uh, another superhero line out, which, which our Remco line coming out has all got that superhero-ish you know, look. But these are really more depictions of, of uh, you know, what the athletes actually looked like. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, our artists are second to none, uh, you know, in the head sculpts. When you look at them, as, I mean, when I first took it out of the box, I like, you know, was looking at it, I was afraid it was going to like move. <laughs> just, yeah, 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 like like this is a little voodoo doll or something. But right. I mean, no, they're, they're really, they're really accurate. And uh, if we can continue with that same kind of, you know, authentic looks, to, you know, what we're doing moving forward. I mean, it's just going to continue to be a very prestigious line. But, you know, people talk talked about Vern particularly because we did him in his youth and his heyday with a full head of hair. And, uh, you know, I think it's just great because you want to see somebody at their at their peak and uh, to see a young, youthful uh, Vern Ganya is just the coolest thing ever, I think. Yeah, Greg, what – what well, they didn't come to look to the 1950s. Him and Lou, okay. how they looked in 1950. We tried to do it by their decades and, and take that look. And Brody and Hanson in their decade and Terry Von Erich and uh, um, who is the, who am I missing here? Uh, yeah. Oh, Magnum TA. Hey, that guy. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, him. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, I, our sculptors did a phenomenal job. And our, the reports we're getting back from people. They think they're fantastic. Um, I lost the picture here. Am I still on? You're still on. We hear you, but you're frozen. Okay. On. All I have is a white. I think Magnum did that after there I you got go. it. Who was in there? I got that button. I keep hitting it every every <laughs> once in a while. Just magic maker here. The We got a lot of stuff coming up, and we and we have over 200 people on board. Uh, T.A. Uh, has been phenomenal in, in what he's done for the company and how he's helped. Uh, just I can't even say enough about what he's contributed to to the success of this company. And um, he's got a couple of other surprises. Who else did you sign recently? Can you announce it yet? No. Got to leave no. it sealed. Right. Okay. <laughs> you know what we need to do? We need to get a couple of these guys on TV. Get get. Get uh, get on our podcast. Get MGF on there. I'll roll with You know, let's get CM Punk on here. Oh man, that'd be something. That'd be something. Do we have to go through the WWE to get? Oh yeah, we'd have to definitely do that. Do we? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's uh, see what you can do. See how yeah. good you are, Dom. I know. Me and we have, me and my dirt seat work. We'll see how who it else, goes. Who else? Ta, should we try to get on? Let's get. You ought to, you you to call your friend Steph. Hey, there you go. See if we can interview her. Mm. 
Why well, not? I, th I, th I think you and her go way back. Yeah, we do. All right. I'll tell her we have a podcast. We'd like to put some of your people on. In fact, we'd love to have you on there. There you go. There you go. All right. Yeah, help, help, help Dominic out a little bit. What? Yeah, help me out a little bit. Yeah, help him out a little bit. We're, we're yeah. loading his wagon up here. I want to give you a little more. Give a wish list. Getting enough. Well, folks, <laughs> I, I'm just so happy we're getting over these technical difficulties. I, I'm glad I can hear you guys. It's all working good. Thanks. Right. Mine keeps freezing up. It's a work in progress. We're going to get there. But Greg, uh, I know you will handle it because you're Mr. Technology. You'll get it. Yes, out. thank you very much. Yes. I'm fully confident in your ability. <laughs> I got to call TA about three or four times a day. Hey, I'm stuck here. Help me out. Hey, yeah, listen, you sounded crystal clear today on Busted Open, so you're doing something right. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> they, were, they were nice people and great people. Uh, uh, Dave's great, and uh, Tommy Jammer were there today, but the whole staff they have there is phenomenal. They're In fact, TA, um, I told them today, and I talked to Steve, we need to send them five action figures. We'll get right on that when, as soon as we get done here. Yeah, I know you will. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dave, he had Vern up in the background, so uh, I told him we'd get him the other five. He's got to collect them all. That's what Dave said. He's got to collect them all. Yeah, so, absolutely. I, I will say, I ordered, I did order the Perry Von Eric Diamond Collection one, so I'm excited. Did you really? Are there any left, TA? There's a few. There's a few. But There's once they're gone, they're gone. So uh, this will be a once and done deal. How do people get them right now? Yeah, Magnum, how so, do they get the figures there? How do they get the figures there? You want to plug that? Oh, well, they, they go to our website. Mm -hmm. go, it's powertown.com. Hit that QR code you guys see right, right there. Hit that QR code, Powertown, where, where wrestling lives on, and, uh, and secure your figure before they're out. Because uh, I have a feeling that once these the vault is closed on this and the association with the movie and the unbelievable tribute from those two girls about their dad inside that book, that this thing is going to be an instant collectible. And, you know, they'll be on eBay for $2,000 or something, you know, in, in a year. So, uh, you know, get them while you can get them for 55 bucks because that, that price won't last. No, it's a great deal. And that, that attention to detail that we went over last week. Uh, yeah, check it out. I saw one the other day of Stan Hansen online for fifteen hundred dollars. Crazy, right? And yeah. I was I was googling too last before we recorded the first episode. I was just trying to look. I was like, man, I should get some of these figures. And I was like, holy crap! Yeah, it's <laughs> unbelievable. So, yeah. so the collectors are making the money, and we're just sitting here, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, if you like what you're seeing, we will be doing a few giveaways here. So, uh, but the key is. You have to subscribe to the YouTube channel. That's if you're not, if you're listening, go to Gagne and Magnum.com. That'll take us to take you to the YouTube channel. Subscribe there. Uh, be sure to like and comment on some stuff, but we'll show We'll get a little details about how to maybe win something here down the line. coming up. So uh, we want to get the word out about the show. So uh, be sure to do that. You can follow Greg at Gagne Greg dot Greg on Instagram. You can follow the real Magnum TA at the real Magnum TA on uh, X or Twitter, if you will. And then uh, Robert, we had the, uh, Robert was kind enough to pull up the banner from last time. Magnum TA, at Magnum underscore TA on Instagram. And hey, you can follow me if you'd like, at Dominic D'Angelo on Twitter. 
So there you go. Um, guys, what a fun second episode. We covered so much ground. We could have talked about Vern for a much more longer too, and we'll be sure to cover him a lot more moving forward too. Guys, Man, fun episode. Oh, go ahead, Greg. Some of those on board action figures are coming out. and Listen to some of the great stories from the, the wrestlers from the past, the ones that built this industry. Right. Yes. Very much. Stay tuned. And thanks to, again, to our producer, Robert uh, DeFelice, who's on the ones and twos for us, and he's doing a good job. So uh, good stuff, Magnum. Good stuff, Greg. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Appreciate it. Nice job, buddy. Yep. We'll see you guys. Yeah. TA, yep. we'll talk to you later, buddy. All right. Good All right. show, guys. Good night, everybody.